All right, good to see you this morning. Would you, uh, if you're able to, would you stand back up on your feet? If this is your first time with us, uh, my name is Andrew. I'm the lead pastor here at New Life East, and I'm excited about the prairie party. Yeah, now I have never been, I've said this before, I've never been to a prairie party before. I don't know anything about this. All I knew up to just a couple nights ago was that a prairie party was like a hoedown, but only cooler. That's what Colin said. And that was not helpful because I don't know what a hoedown really is. But so then, yes, so I was meeting with Linda Maple this week. I don't know if Linda is in here, but Linda told me if I wanted to know what a prairie party was all about, I would have to watch the movie Oklahoma, uh, the musical. And so I did that. I did my homework. I watched most of it. Preachers can't get away with telling any stories when their wives are in the building. That ain't no good. Anyway, we watched, yeah, well, I watched a lot of it. And what I did conclude is that I have to get better at my singing to attend a prairie party. That's what I know about it, but I don't know anything else. Can we declare our faith this morning before we open the scriptures? Say it with me. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, universal, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. If you agree with that in the building and watching with us online, say it real loud. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. We are in the book of Galatians chapter 3, and I'm going to start in verse 26 this morning. Uh, As you know, Uh, We've been going through the book of Galatians. Uh, Title of the series is The Revolutionary Gospel. What is the change that the gospel brings to the world? Pastor Colin taught out of Galatians chapter 5 last week. And don't you love Pastor Colin? Man, you brought it, bro. It's amazing. You've got an amazing pastor in your midst with that one. But I'm going to be in Galatians chapter 3, and we've got a couple more weeks in Galatians before I bring the series in for a landing. We've already been over this territory before, but I just felt... In the last few weeks, kind of a tug from the Spirit to revisit this moment and to talk about the revolution that the gospel uh, makes, the revolution that the gospel represents, at the level of how we relate to one another. Uh, If the gospel changes everything about the way that we relate to God, it also, I think, the most direct human impact is the way that it changes the way that we relate to one another. Although I think typically, this is just my observation, I think typically in evangelical circles, we don't often pay enough attention to that. What is the way in which the gospel transforms our relationships with one another and with the world at large? And this text here in Galatians chapter 3, 
I think is one of the clearest and most concise statements of the way in which the gospel makes a difference for society, not just for us individually, but for society. And I think it also represents in its own way, it represents a mandate for the church in terms of our calling as a people, our public witness. And so we're going to be in Galatians chapter 3. I'm going to start in verse 26. Before we get there, let's lift our hearts up in prayer. God of glory, majesty, praise forever to the King of kings. That is what we say. Jesus, we love you, we worship you, and we adore you. We pray that you would glorify your name in all of the earth. We ask that your spirit would be rich among us these next few moments as we open the scriptures together. We are asking that all that is in us that is against the kingdom of God would be torn down. All that is in us that is not in alignment with the reality of Christ Jesus. I pray that all of that would be torn down this morning. And I pray that you would awaken in us a greater sense of what our calling to the world is. Grant that this morning. We ask that you would help us see with fresh eyes the miracle that is the good news of Jesus Christ in our midst. Come and help us. We pray that as we tuck our minds into the scriptures this morning, that what Paul said in Romans 12 would be true, that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds. May these words reshape the whole way that we think about ourselves, the whole way that we think about you, and the way that we think about the world around us. Grant, we pray that the words of the preacher's mouth and the meditation of the hearer's hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said. Galatians 3 verse 26. So, Paul writes, In Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ... You have clothed yourselves with Christ. And there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. Just like Isaac was the seed of Abraham and the heir according to the promise, Paul says that if you belong now to Christ Jesus, who was the true seed of Abraham, you also are Abraham's seed. And you also are heirs according to the promise. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord and all God's people said. Thanks be uh, to God. The ancient region of Galatia, this letter was written into, was a wildly diverse metropolitan area. It's an ancient area in the modern world. This is modern day Turkey. So if you kind of know where that is, it's sort of a land bridge that connects Africa, Europe, and the Middle East. So lots of different peoples passed through there. The ancient region of Galatia was full of a great deal of diversity. So lots of different ethnicities and people groups mixed up in that area. You also had lots of different sort of stratifications of society, the rich and the poor, slaves, all of that and everything in between, all of that was there. And then of course in the ancient world, uh, sort of the regulations around, the ideas around the role that a man was supposed to play in society and the role that women were supposed to play in society All of that was fairly rigid and fairly stratified. You had all of that. And so all of that also was represented in the Galatian church. So here is this community in which there are Jews and Gentiles. Remember in the ancient world, Jews and Gentiles did not really interact with one another. Okay, Jews, for the most part, just went, those folks are outsiders to the promise. Maybe God is going to do something with them at some point. We don't know, and we don't really care. We're just going to manage our little business. Okay. 
And a lot of Gentiles were also very contemptuous of the Jews because they were just odd. They were just different. You didn't get a lot of flowing together of Jew and Gentile in Roman society. Slave and free, certainly those socioeconomic distinctions, male and female, all of that was very rigid. Lots of stratification in that society. All of that also represented in the Galatian church. So think then about the miracle of what Paul says here. That all of you who were baptized into Christ, by the way, we're doing baptisms in a couple weeks here, October 31st, on Halloween, actually. We're doing baptisms, which is crazy. If you've not been baptized, let us know and we'll get you signed up for that. But what Paul says about baptism is that baptism is not just the rite of passage that like connects you to the church, you know, like, oh yeah, you filled out all of your paperwork for the YMCA. It's all complete. Sign on the dotted line now. You, But that's not. For Paul, it certainly is that on a human level, but more than that, it can be that because it's a receiving of a more fundamental reality. Okay? It's all about clothing yourself in Christ Jesus. And for Paul, according to what he says here, every member of the Galatian community, okay, no matter where they came from, no matter their socioeconomic status, no matter the color of their skin, no matter their gender, no matter their place in society, every single one of them has been clothed in who? Do you have your Bibles in front of you? Clothed in who? Clothed in Christ Jesus. So that the dignity that Jesus has as the son of the living God, every member of the community also has that. They've been clothed in Christ Jesus. And the effect of that is to erode the distinctions between them. And we use those distinctions to put people down, don't we? Are you over there? Us over here? You get to do this. I get to do this. We do all of this to manage our lives. And Paul's commentary on that situation is that the advent of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the midst of all of those distinctions, all of that has been obliterated. And now we no longer can look at one another through all of those rigid ethnic, uh, social, or gender distinctions because all of us have been clothed with the same royal dignity as the Son of God. Martin Luther put it so beautifully when he said, what greater fame and pride could we have than to be called children of the highest and to have all that he is and has? According to Luther, there were no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. Every single one of them is clothed in the fame and the pride of being called children of the highest. And think about it, having all that he is and has. Can you imagine a greater dignity than this? Than being called children of the highest. So think about the great statement of John Calvin and his institutes, his great theological uh, setting forth of the Christian faith. One of the things that he argues is that in the ascension of Jesus Christ, remember after Jesus is raised from the dead, he's with his disciples for 40 days and then he ascends to the right hand of God. Many of us, when we think about the ascension, we fail to really realize what is at stake in it. For a lot of us, when we think about the ascension, what we think is that Jesus came, right, and he took a body for those 33 years. He lived, he died, he rose from the dead. And then when he ascended, he left his body behind to go back and be a spiritual being at the right hand of the Father. But that, you know, is a heresy. The ancient church condemned that heresy a long time ago. When Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, how did he do it? Did he do it as a pure spirit being? No. How did he do it? Bodily. So the body of Jesus, think about it. Mary's son, Pilate's victim, is sitting at the right hand of God the Father. And what Calvin goes on to argue is that in Christ Jesus, remember, when we say that Jesus is very God and very man, what we're not saying is that Jesus just became a human being among many human beings. But we're saying that in Jesus Christ, 
all human beings somehow are summarized in him. So that what happens to Jesus Christ also happens to them. He fulfills the destiny of human beings. So when the bodily Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father, who also is sitting at the right hand of the Father? Humanity is sitting at the right hand of the Father without distinction. So not just Jewish humanity sitting at the right hand of the Father, but Gentile humanity. Your humanity and mine is sitting at the right hand of the Father. And not just male humanity is sitting at the right hand of the Father, but female humanity, if humanity is summarized in Jesus, is sitting where? At the very right hand of God. And not just wealthy, well-to-do humanity sitting at the right hand of God, but Jesus came, as Andy was saying, quoting Philippians 2 in the service here, Jesus came in the form of a what? Of a servant. The old translations actually say that he came in the form of a slave. Slave humanity is seated where? At the right hand of the Father. Guys, this is a revolution in the way that we think about one another and how we relate to one another. Christianity, I think, affords the greatest dignity to human beings than any system of thought could ever afford to human beings. And by the way, it's not just a new thing in the New Testament. When you start looking at the whole scope of biblical revelation, you see that God has always been in the business of lifting up those who are bowed down, of including those who have been excluded. This is Exodus chapter 22. The Lord has brought his people up out of Egypt. He's given them the Ten Commandments. He's forming them to be his people. And he says this, watch this. The Lord says, Do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner, for you also were foreigners in Egypt. And don't take advantage of the widow, the women in your community who are bereft, who have nothing. Don't take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. If you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. Verse 25. If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, don't treat it like a business deal. Charge no interest. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it by sunset because that cloak is the only covering your neighbor has. What else can they sleep in? When they cry out to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. What is God doing? With this people who have been recently delivered up out of the oppression of Egypt, what he's saying to them is that the oppression of Egypt will not continue in this community. And so the foreigner and the alien, the fatherless, the widow, the poor and the needy, all of them, you, because you worship me, who delivered you up out of Egypt when you were oppressed and when your life was pushed down, you're going to treat them the same way that I treated you, right? This commandment, the pattern of this commandment is repeated in the New Testament. We love, the scripture says, why? Because he first loved us. That's happening here in Exodus, Deuteronomy chapter 15. The Lord says, if any of your people, Hebrew men and women, sell themselves to you and serve you for six years, they become servants, slaves in the community. In the seventh year, you must let them go free. And when you release them, don't send them away empty-handed, but supply them liberally from your flock, your threshing floor, and your wine press, give to them as the Lord your God has blessed you. Remember that you were what? You also were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God redeemed you. And that's why I give you this command today. What's fascinating there is that the Lord acknowledges the reality of that institution and that sometimes those kinds of things do happen. Somebody falls in trouble and they need to sell themselves to you as a servant. But what he does, notice the compassion and the justice of our God, that what he does is he places a limit around it. You do not get to hang on to these people in perpetuity. But if they sell themselves to you, they fall into trouble, okay? You can have them for six years, but in the seventh year, what happens? They go free. And in the seventh year, 
you're not just supposed to let them go free. It's like, all right, well, fine. God told us to do this. I got to get God off my back. But the Lord is like, open up the storehouses for them. You supply them liberally from your threshing floor. Give them as the Lord your God has given to you. Do you see this? That what the Lord has always been about is about lifting up the fallen. Those that have been pushed down, the Lord wants to lift them up. Now, a question might emerge in our mind when we think about this. We go, okay, well, but still, it sort of seems like Exodus and Deuteronomy are condoning some of these institutions, you know? The institutions that kept people oppressed and kept people pushed down. A few weeks ago, I preached a message on the, uh, the way in which in the New Covenant, the Lord writes the law on our hearts. And I argued that the law is not a bad thing. The law is actually a very good thing. And a gal wrote to me after, right after the service. She goes, Pastor Andrew, I just watched your message. I love it. It was super helpful. And if the law is such a good thing, why is it that we see some of that rigid class distinction still in the Old Testament? And why do we even see the institution of slavery there? And it's a good question to ask. How can God allow this? How can God tolerate this? But when I think about the way that the work of God normally progresses, think about how it moves forward in your own life. When you first came to know the Lord, there was not this sort of invasion of God into every area of your life that automatically fixed everything, did it? What happened is God plants the seed of his own nature. He plants the seed of the kingdom of God inside us. And remember, Jesus said that the kingdom of God is like what? It's like a mustard seed, right? Smallest thing, yet when it grows, it becomes the largest of all garden plants so that even the birds of the air perch in its branches. That's what happens to us, is that God plants his will and his ways and his nature in us. And we find that over time, the impact, the force, the pressure of God's nature in us, it starts eroding all of the foundations of evil inside of our lives. We're sanctified over time. I think that that's what the Lord does with his people in the Old Testament, that he delivers them up out of Egypt and then he plants the kingdom among them and the kingdom of God among them begins to deconstruct all of the old structures and systems of injustice. Year after year, century after century, God is at work among his people. One of the best places, I think, that you can see this, this trajectory of God overcoming those systems and structures among his people is in Joel chapter 2. Joel is looking ahead to the end of history and he anticipates this great outpouring of the Spirit. You know this text because Peter quotes this at Pentecost. And the scripture says that afterward, I will pour out my spirits on who? Yeah, I got to know that you're with me this morning. Afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Think about that. That Joel looks to the end of history and he sees that the institution of prophecy, the gift of the Holy Spirit, is not just, will not just any longer be for men, but it will also be for women. That they get in on this too. That they're filled with the spirit given the ability to speak the word of God as well, just as much as the men. Think about that. And then he goes on to say that even the servants, the slaves in society, even those will also be given a share of the spirit, both men and women, and they also will prophesy. Guys, this is an expression of radical equality. If the spirit is given equally to each person in the community, that renders obsolete all of the old distinctions between people, doesn't it? If everybody is a carrier of the Spirit, then everybody bears the same dignity as everybody else. Are you tracking with me this morning? 
Jesus Christ is the full and final definitive revelation of God. And think about the way in which the ministry of Jesus Christ progressed. Think about, when we think about ethnic distinctions, gender distinctions, class distinctions, think about all of those times in the Gospels that Jesus does miracles for Roman centurions. What do you think the scripture is trying to say to us about the kingdom of God? That it belongs to Roman centurions just as much as it belongs to those who are the ethnic children of Abraham. Are you following with me this morning? Think about all of those moments. Think about the people that Jesus chose to spend most of his time with. Not the rich, but who did he spend his time with? The poor, mostly. And in fact, in the Gospels, when Jesus gives his inaugural sermon in Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes, the opening Beatitude, you remember what it is? Blessed are the poor. For what? Theirs is the kingdom of God. Like, listen, your social and your economic station, think about it, is not a barrier for you entering into all that God is and has for you. The kingdom belongs to you. Think about all the time that Jesus spent in the Gospels with women. Think about the elevated status that he gave to women in the Gospels. Great example of this. Do you remember the story of Mary, Jesus in the home of Mary and Martha? All those folks gathered around and Martha, the very uh, conscientious one, fastidious, making sure that everything is together. And Martha's all freaked out, right? All the preparations that had to be made. And then she looks into the room and there's all of these men seated around Jesus, listening to the rabbi talk. And who else is seated around Jesus? Do you remember the story? Mary. And Martha's mad about it. Martha comes to Jesus. She goes, Jesus, she's sitting at your feet and she's left me to do all the preparation work. Why don't you tell her to get in the kitchen with me? And Jesus says to her, Martha, just so you know, Mary has chosen the better part and it will not be taken away from her. This is actually the better place to be. Do you know what it meant for a woman to sit at the feet of Jesus in that society? It meant that she was pushing her way into the circle of his discipleship. This was generally forbidden to women in Jewish society. You just didn't do that. And here is Mary pushing her way through, sitting down at the feet of Jesus, and Jesus actually blesses that. And by the way, in Jewish society, when you attached yourself to a rabbi to learn from him, do you know what you were saying? You were saying, one day I'm going to be like you. That's what Mary is saying. Jesus, all that you have and all that you are and all that you know of God, I want all of that. I want to be like you. And Jesus blesses that. Brothers and sisters, I'm saying to you this morning that this stuff, the stuff about how God, how the gospel changes the way that we relate to one another in society, this is not something other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. This just is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The sin that Jesus Christ came to save us from is the sin that divides us from one another. The sin that causes certain groups of people to be pushed down. The sin that causes certain groups of people to be relegated off to the side and you only get to do this and you don't get to play as full members of the kingdom of God. All of that stuff is the very stuff that Jesus Christ came to deconstruct. Do you understand that? Are you with me this morning? Can I get some amens from the people of God in the house this morning? And I think that this has everything to do with our witness as God's people. What is the message that we give to the world? What is it that we say to them? What is the thing that we offer to the world that gives them hope that the world can be a different place? It has everything to do with our witness. And when I think about the whole idea of witness, when I was a kid growing up in the church, 
In that era, the 80s and the 90s, it seemed like most of the folks in society, the question that people were asking about Christianity is, is Christianity true? And I don't know if you've been in the church for any length of time, you probably remember, there was a very long stretch in the church's history here in North America where the burden was on the church to show that the message of the gospel was true, that it was defensible. And so when I was a kid growing up, most of our apologetic strategy was aimed at answering this question, is Christianity true? So what we were out to do was we were out to show that the idea of God was intellectually defensible, right? So proofs for the existence of God. And we were very much out to show that uh, the New Testament text that we have is reliable text, you know, based on all of the tools of text criticism that we have. This is reliable text. This is giving us a genuine window into the life of Jesus. And we spent a lot of time also trying to prove that the resurrection actually happened. Well, I don't know if you've noticed this, but we don't really live in a world anymore where people are asking the question, is Christianity true? Part of the reason for that is that the idea of truth has been so relativized and fragmented that even if we were to marshal a really good defense for the truth of Christianity, most people in our culture will go, well, that's fine. That's true for you, but it's not true for me. And you go ahead and live your truth, and I'm going to go ahead and live my own truth, and everybody's obligation is to just kind of live their own truth. And if we all do that, we'll all live happy. Nobody's really asking this question anymore. You know the question that people are asking now about Christianity? They don't care whether or not it's true. What they're asking is, is Christianity good? And that changes the ballgame. That changes the ballgame. And it actually throws the question back at us, doesn't it? Is Christianity good? How would you answer that question? How would you answer that question? And I got to tell you, when I think about that question, the question of is Christianity good, I have mixed feelings about that. On the one hand, what I want to say about Christianity is that Christianity, in its essence, is good. The gospel of Jesus Christ, in all of its description in the New Testament, it is as good of news as we could ever hope to receive. Paul's words here about how in Christ Jesus, there's neither Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free, but all of you are what? That's great, great news. And also when I look at the history of the church, I want to say that the movement of the gospel into society, that has been good news for the world. I think about, and you can read about this if you want to, but when you think about the first few centuries of the church, the church's existence, the early church, the early church lived this well. It was known for being this kind of a society, a society in which women were elevated, elevated to a status that was totally foreign to Roman and Greek society and Jewish society. They had a higher standing. A society in which the church was a society in which the poor were very much looked out for. In fact, one of the uh, emperors that took over after Constantine, uh, the Constantinian sort of revolution that Christianized everything, there was another emperor that took over by the name of Julian the Apostate. And Julian was trying to revert Christianity back to a pagan state. And one of the things that got him really frustrated was that he could not reinvent the Christian system of charity that they had invented among the churches. He was like, okay, we want to try to provide a replacement for Christianity, but the Christians are so nice to the poor. They're so good to the poor. And we just can't really do it. It was like a great frustration. The church was known for this. It was known to be a place where people of different ethnicities came together and shared life together. This was part of what it gave to the world. And when I think even about modern times, I think about the last 150 years or so, and I think about the rise of women's rights in our own society, do you know that a lot of the impulse and the energy of that wasn't just argued from sort of secular principles, but it was Christians who knew texts like this and knew them well. It was Christians who understood the ways in which 
Jesus blessed and sanctified female flesh. The way that female flesh, as Calvin says, is seated at the right hand of the Father, it was Christians who looked at that and went, wait, we can no longer tolerate the idea of having a society in which women don't have a full voice. That's wrong. That has to be abolished. Do you know that that came from Christianity? And that, by the way, is not something other than our witness to the world. That actually part, that is part of our witness to the world. That if these things are the things that Jesus Christ has come to overturn, then we cannot but raise our voices for these things. The civil rights movement. Read the speeches sometime of Martin Luther King Jr. When you read those speeches, you see that this was a guy who was bathed. He was soaked, not in secular principles of equality, but he was soaked in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it was out of that that he spoke a prophetic word to the world that changed so much of our society. Think about apartheid in South Africa when that fell decades ago. Do you know who was on the front lines of trying to put all of that back together again? How do we help blacks and whites in this society figure out how to live peaceably with one another? It was the Christians. It was bishops and pastors that got in the middle of all of that and said, we know something about reconciliation. We know something about forgiveness. We know something about human lives working together the way God intends. And so we're going to get involved in all of this and speak a word of truth that brings this society back together again, even in closer to home, even in our own community. When I think about Mary's home, the apartment complex that we purchased years ago to put single moms who are living on the streets, to put those moms and their kids up, rehabilitate them and help get them back on our feet again. Why do we do that? Is it because we're just kind of looking for something nice to do? No. We do this because we believe that in Christ Jesus, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, male or female, slave or free, but all of us are one in Christ Jesus. And because we've all been given equal dignity and standing in the kingdom of God, and because we're one in Christ Jesus, we have a responsibility for one another. So we do that not as something separate from our gospeling in the world, but we do that as part of our gospeling in the world. Are you with me? When I think about all of the efforts that we've made in the last bunch of years to reach out to the poor and the marginalized in Central America, are we doing that because that's something else to do? Are we doing it as something that's outside of our gospel witness? No. We do it because we believe that the brown skin of those poor children matters as much as the white skin of rich people living in Briargate. Are you with me this morning? This isn't something subsidiary to our gospeling in the world. This is how we gospel in the world. And so when you ask the question, is Christianity good? What I want to answer with my whole heart is that it is good. The gospel, as it's been given to us, is good. And the practice of our faith down through the centuries and even of our own time, I think, has been good. And I also want to say that our legacy has been mixed on this, hasn't it? You think about that early flurry, the first few centuries of the church, the way that they so eagerly lived into that vision of radical equality in the kingdom of God. They lived into that for a few centuries. And then there was this long period in church history where those old rigid stratifications of society and the expectations about where people of different ethnicities should be and who should, men should do this and women should do 
this and all of the old divisions between class and all of that started creeping back into the church. And one of the things that I often wonder, when I look at the past, let's say, 100 years or so, and all of these great sort of secular movements for justice that have risen up, then this is not gospel, this is conjecture. So you're going to have to think about this on your own. But one of the things that I often think about is that I wonder if the reason that those secular movements for justice were needed was because the church had vacated space that belonged to it. Guys, I think that we were supposed to be out there. We were supposed to be the loudest voices for equality between people of different ethnicities. We were supposed to be the loudest voices for equality between people of different genders. We were supposed to be the loudest voices in advocacy for the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized. We didn't do it. So the world had to show up instead. And that is an abandonment of our calling. It's an abandonment of our identity as sons and daughters of the living God in Christ Jesus. If what Christ Jesus did during the days of his life on earth was that he spoke the gospel to Roman centurions and brought them in. If what Christ Jesus did is he spoke the gospel to the poor and brought them in. If what Christ Jesus did is he delivered the gospel, not just spoke the gospel, but gave the gospel to women then that also is what we are called to do. And I get this question a lot from people, especially we got it last year as a community, when all of this stuff in our society was raging and things were going crazy. We felt as a pastoral team, we felt that it was our obligation as much as possible to try to speak out in favor of what God was doing to bring greater, greater equality. And I got this comment from people all the time. Andrew, I wish that pastors nowadays would just stick to the gospel? And would you just leave all the other stuff alone? And do you know what my answer to that question is? That's all I'm doing. <laughs> it's what we're called to do. And I'll expand on that answer here. There is no other gospel for us. The one gospel of Jesus Christ is the gospel of how in the body of this man, God has come among us and he has destroyed the barrier, as Ephesians says, the dividing wall of hostility that existed between Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free. The one gospel that we have to preach in the world is the gospel of how in Jesus Christ, there is a new humanity being created in which all of that stuff no longer applies. Are you with me, brothers and sisters? We're called to live in this way. And so when we gather in this community on Sunday morning and when we gather in churches all over the world, what we're not doing is looking at how evil the world is and going, boy, I wish they would just get better. But what we're doing when we gather together in the house of God for worship is we are laying our lives at the feet of the one who by his life, death, and resurrection, by the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, has overcome all of this and intends to overcome it in us so that our witness to the world would be true. If you can agree with that this morning, would you stand as we prepare our hearts for communion? In us, O oh God, in us first, in us first.
Peter says that it's time for judgment to begin in the house of God. Would you judge God everything in us that nurtures the old distinctions that you came to overcome? Would you demolish that in us? Come, judge it, judge it, oh God. In the way that in the broken body of the Lord Jesus, all of the brokenness of our world was judged, would you judge it in us? And would you sanctify us? We pray this morning. Would you fill us with your spirit again this morning? We pray. Would you sanctify us through and through so that we can be a sanctifying presence to the world? So that by our life and our witness, by our words and our actions, that we would bear witness to the world of a better way to be human, the kingdom way. Come among us, we pray. And as we prepare ourselves for the table of the Lord, We want to come having searched our hearts. And so we make this our prayer before you, Lord Jesus. We say, most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, Have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will, do it God, and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And now brothers and sisters, I say to you this morning that if anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, everything has become new. If you can receive that this morning, can we give God praise as we prepare for the table of the Lord. We're going to sing this song of worship in response, and then Colin's going to lead us to the table. Worthy of every song we could ever sing. You're worthy of all the praise we could ever bring Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe We live for you We live for you Jesus, the name above every other name Jesus, the only one who could ever say, You are worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you. We live for you. Every breath we could ever breathe. 
be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Yes, it is right to give him thanks. So do that now. For how you are at work, Jesus. Ephesians says it, that it's his blood that breaks down the barrier. And that those who have been far from Christ are brought near through the blood of Jesus Christ. For Jews and Gentiles, for all of you are brought near through what's in your hands, the blood of Jesus. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and after he'd given thanks, just like we have done this morning, he broke it. Would you break the bread in your fingers? He said, this is my body, which is for you. Would you receive the bread together? That same night, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This is the cup that washes away sins. The new covenant is that you now have access to Jesus. You, have an, you are the new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. What a gift this is, church, to receive life, to be unified through Jesus' blood. That's what this represents in your hands. Would you receive the cup together? respond simply in praise and worship for this gift of Jesus. We thank you. Would you lift your voice? What greater fame or honor could we have than to be called children of the highest and to have all that he is and has? That's you. That's me. Wherever we've come from, whatever we've done, that's the dignity that's been given to us. Children of the living God. Would you open your hands like this and receive this blessing as you go? My brothers and sisters, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. 
May the Lord turn his face towards you and may he grant you his peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, grace, mercy, and peace be with you. Well, gee, thanks, guys. I'll invite our altar ministry team to come forward. If you need prayer for anything this morning, we'd love to pray with you. See us at Connect Central if you're new. We've got a gift for you. And go and meet Rory Green after the service. Rory and Brooke are going to be in the lobby after the service here. We love you, New Life East. We'll see you at the Prairie Party this weekend and right here next Sunday morning. Go in God's grace and peace.